Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, a single block located between 5th and 6th Avenue on 47th Street in New York is known as the Diamond District. The bustling epicenter of New York's diamond and jewelry sales industry sprang up on 47th Street in the 1920s and continues to be one of the most popular locations for jewelry shoppers today. The Diamond District expanded during World War II when thousands fled Nazi-occupied Europe and set up shop in New York City. The Diamond Dealers Club, which was founded in the 1930s as a place for dealers and brokers to store their diamonds, has described the arrival of new traders as follows. Their influx into America, together with the unprecedented economic boom that took place in the country in the post-war period, shifted the balance of the diamond trade from Western Europe to New York. Indeed, immigration has long been a decisive factor in the growth of the U.S. diamond sector, and the DDC, both then and today, traditionally has served as a melting pot for a diverse group of nationalities and cultures. Many store owners and workers in the Diamond District were Orthodox or Hasidic Jews. A small place that contained such valuable products was always bound to attract undesirables. But in 1977, the disappearance of two diamond cutters proved that pressure was only good for diamonds. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead. And welcome to episode 36 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. On the morning of September 20th, 1977, 25-year-old Pinhos Yaroslawicz 
known as PJ, left his wife, Rebecca, and two-year-old daughter, Tova, at home wearing a brown suit, a long black coat, and a round hat. PJ said that he would be home for dinner that evening before he went to the local synagogue near his home in Flatbush, Brooklyn, as he always did around 6.30 each morning before work. After 40 minutes of prayer and another 30 minutes of studying scripture, PJ would head into Manhattan to begin work. PJ was well-known and well-liked in the Diamond District. He was a deeply religious young man, trusted by many in the community. Dealers would have no problem allowing PJ, a broker, to carry hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of diamonds in his leather pouch to show to prospective buyers, because they knew he was honest. His traditional ringlets and gold-rimmed glasses framed his slim face, and he could often be seen stopping to talk to those less fortunate on the street. PJ was a member of the Diamond Club, collecting a stash of gems from there daily to sell for clients and other dealers. He usually returned the diamonds at the end of the day before he went home to his wife. Still, on this day, he never arrived at the Diamond Club and never came home for dinner. Rebecca was concerned as the evening drew to a close. Her husband was reliable. Even if he had a last-minute appointment, he would use a telephone to let her know. But it was the day before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the holiest day in the Hebrew calendar, so there was no way PJ would stay away from home. A neighbor and friend, David Falda, told the Daily News, He's an Orthodox Jew and very devoted to his family. He would not disappear. He's the kind of guy who, if he was going to be half an hour late, would call. I have known the man all my life. We went to school together, and I live next door right now. He is just not the type to go off anywhere. Rebecca called her father-in-law and told him that PJ hadn't arrived home, and he immediately gathered friends to search for him. They went to the Diamond Dealer Club and checked PJ's vault. It was empty. Knowing that he was missing with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of precious stones, they worried for his safety and tried to report him missing. As it had been only a few hours, the police told them there was nothing they could do yet, so the small search party returned to the Diamond District and began asking if anyone had seen PJ. He was described as thin, weighing approximately 120 pounds and standing 5 feet 9 inches tall. Another member of the club recalled PJ asking for change to use the telephone and saying that he only had one last appointment before he was heading home. But as the search died down for the Holy Day of Atonement, PJ was nowhere to be found. Yom Kippur was spent praying for PJ's safe return. When he didn't show up to the evening prayer service, the entire community knew that something was very wrong. Over the following four days, hundreds of men most of whom were Hasidic Jews, searched alleys and streets around the Diamond District and looked through the attics, basements, stairwells, and elevator shafts in the retail units. The police joined the search. Their navy blue uniform was the only hint of color amidst the crowds of black frock coats worn by volunteers as they looked for PJ. When he vanished, authorities discovered that PJ was carrying around half a million dollars worth of diamonds or more. Based on his reputation, investigators did not believe he had stolen the gems. Without a ransom call, they did not think he had been kidnapped. After six days of fruitless searching, Police Sergeant Howard Russell with the NYPD Missing Persons Squad told the press, 
we're at a dead end. All we can do is wait for somebody to call in a tip. Police began to compile a list of PJ's clients and the places he was known to visit in an effort to trace him. But they felt as though the secretive way in which diamond dealers conducted their business was hindering the investigation. One diamond dealer club member said, If they don't find the boy on the street, they will never find him. They learned that the last person PJ had visited was another diamond dealer named Shlomo Tal. Tal had a small office on the 15th floor of a building at 15 West on 47th Street, a few doors down from the diamond dealers club. Another dealer had seen PJ walk toward Tal's office on the evening he went missing at approximately 5.30 p.m. But when the police first spoke to Tal, he said he hadn't seen PJ at all that day, and he left work at 5 p.m. Before the police could question Tal again, he too went missing. On September 26th, Tal's wife, Aviva, asked a friend to stop by her husband's office, as he had not come home the night before. When the friend arrived, he found that the door was open. With evidence of an apparent break-in, police were called to the scene. The steel door leading to the office looked as though it had been jimmied, according to officers, and wires on the burglary alarm had been cut. Inside the office, glass littered the floor, having seemingly fallen out from a broken window in a locked alcove door. Officer Edward Lacey, one of the first on scene, said they were assuming it was a burglary. 31-year-old Tal had left for work the morning before, but people in his office never saw him arrive. Detective Lillian Renner from the Missing Persons Squad told the Daily News, It is too early to connect the disappearances of the men. Tal's wife has not reported him officially missing. Officer Lacey spoke about the scene, saying, The office is always in disarray. The stuff comes in and out. It's all cutting material here, and I wouldn't know a diamond from a piece of broken glass. While the investigators tried to establish where Tal was and if he had been the victim of a violent break-in, PJ's family busied themselves raising thousands of dollars for a reward fund, and searchers continued to trawl the district in their masses. They hired a private investigator to assist the search, and their efforts were considered by police to hamper the investigation. Tal's wife was worried about the attention the investigation brought. She and her husband were Israeli citizens with three children. They had moved to the U.S. from Israel six years earlier. After she reported Tal missing, she confided in Long Island detectives at her local station that her husband told her that PJ owed him money. She said that they had done business together before and after PJ went missing. Tal told her that PJ had sold $2,000 worth of diamonds for him, but had not arrived with the money. Tal did not have a safe in his office, and his wife said he never kept large sums of cash there. Speaking with Newsday reporter Marjorie Kaplan, Aviva Tal said that she was preparing herself to tell their children that their father was missing. Aviva said, I have to tell them that we're doing our best to find their father. They know I love their father. He's the best person in the whole world. I don't even have one bad mark against him. He would never do a thing to hurt his family, and I have to tell the children that. Aviva said that Tal left the house in Plainview, Long Island at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, kissing her goodbye before he got into their station wagon and drove away. 
She said she tried to call him at his office throughout the day, but there was no answer. As hours passed, she tried to console herself with the thought that he would be home any moment, but he didn't arrive. Aviva said that Tal told her about PJ's disappearance and that he couldn't understand what happened to such a nice guy. Without her husband to support her and their three young children, she worried about how she would pay the mortgage. As a second diamond dealer had vanished, merchants on 47th Street began to worry if they were being targeted and worried about how it would impact their business. An international alert was sent out by Chief Detective John Keenan in an attempt to track down the missing men. The diamond industry was multinational, and PJ had made plans to visit Antwerp and Brussels before he disappeared. Keenan said, This is a most unusual case. We need investigators with experience in handling crime in the diamond district, where business is all handshakes and unwritten contracts. Some believe Tal was hiding from the hundred strong search parties looking for PJ. Others thought that he was in trouble for gambling debts. Those who knew both men said that Tal was a bit of a braggart who was not wealthy or savvy, unlike PJ. Around 2 a.m. on September 28th, officers received a report of a station wagon matching the description of Tal's vehicle, parked on a road near Grand Central Parkway in Forest Hills, Queens. As they approached the 1972 Buick station wagon, they saw someone in the back seat. They knocked on the window and asked him to identify himself, and when he produced his driver's license, they recognized the name. It was Shlomo Tal, groggy but unharmed. He told police that while he was on his way to work three days earlier, he stopped at a red light on Woodbury Road when two men jumped into the car and instructed him to keep driving. He said that he had been abducted and driven around until just hours before the police found him, and that his captors had stolen $180. Tal was asked if he knew anything about PJ's disappearance. He insisted he did not. While Tal was taken to the station to give a statement, Officers searched his vehicle. They recovered a large quantity of diamonds from underneath the front seat. After hours of being questioned as a material witness, Tal admitted that he had seen PJ the afternoon he went missing and had witnessed his murder. Tal told detectives that as he was speaking with PJ at around 5.30 p.m. eight days prior, two men walked into his office wielding a two-by-four piece of wood and struck PJ on the head, killing him instantly. Tal said the men forced him to tie PJ's body up, wrap it in plastic bags, and conceal it in his office. He believed that the assailants must have taken the diamonds from PJ, as they warned him not to tell anyone what had happened or they would harm his family. He said the same men kidnapped him five days after the murder and drugged him. Tal agreed to lead investigators to PJ's body, but it was unbelievable that they had not already found it. After all, two separate investigations had examined the scene, once as the last place PJ was known to have been, and the second time as the scene of a break-in. At 7.30 a.m., police went with Tal to his office, and he brought them over to a wooden crate beneath his workbench. Inside the box, they found PJ's body tied tightly in a fetal position and wrapped in plastic bags. The box had three sides and no bottom, PJ's body was wrapped in three plastic bags and concealed with a fourth bag and a piece of lumber on top. The box's length was only half of PJ's height, 
so he had been contorted to fit inside. The medical examiner, Michael M. Bodden, details the condition of PJ's body and the autopsy in his book, Unnatural Death. It was difficult to determine PJ's time of death because if Tal's account was to be believed and two intruders had killed him eight days before his body was found, the level of decomposition had been significantly interrupted. Dr. Baden said that the remains looked as though they had just been put there, his skin color was normal, and there was no bloating as would be expected in a body that had sat for over a week. The police came under fire in the media for not finding the body earlier, during the many searches, so they contended that it had to have been placed there after they had searched. Dr. Baden and the deputy chief medical examiner, Dr. Rowe, had to convince the Orthodox Jewish members of PJ's community to allow them to conduct an autopsy. The religious belief that the human body should not be violated after death and the importance of a speedy burial in Jewish custom meant that the medical examiner's office was filled with Hasidic Jews when the post-mortem examination was due to begin. PJ had to be buried by sundown, and he could not be buried without a death certificate. They could not obtain a death certificate unless the court ruled they did not need one, or if an autopsy was done. Dr. Baden thought of a plan. He writes, To smooth ruffled feathers, there was one other suggestion I could offer, that I do the minimum autopsy required by law. The minimum autopsy required by law is a full autopsy, but there was no need to go into details. Eventually, they agreed to allow Dr. Baden to conduct the autopsy in the presence of a rabbi doctor. This was to ensure that orthodox rules were followed, meaning everything had to be returned to PJ's body following the examination, including his blood, so paper shrouds were placed beneath him to catch any droplets so they could be buried with him. Dr. Baden said, The shroud and even my gloves went back into the body. It doesn't matter if you put extra things into the body, as long as you don't lose blood. God will know what belongs and what doesn't. Dr. Baden found that PJ had sustained a fractured skull and a brain hemorrhage, but his cause of death was suffocation. He believed that after PJ had been knocked out by a blow to the head, he had been wrapped in plastic and tied with his feet facing down, as if he was sitting with his knees to his chest. Lividity is the pooling of blood due to gravity that is seen in a body when the heart stops pumping. As a body is left in a certain position, the blood will pool at the lowest points. Lividity was noted in PJ's lower legs, lower thighs, and lower abdomen. This indicated that his body had not been moved after he died. Dr. Baden surmised that PJ's body had not decomposed because he had been in a plastic bag, which prevented his body from drying and he had been on cold tiles. The combined conditions meant that his body remained in an almost perfect state. Dr. Baden used a new method to determine PJ's time of death, a potassium eye fluid test. After death, potassium will diffuse from surrounding cells into the vitreous fluid. Measuring how much potassium was in the eye could provide a reasonable indication of the postmortem interval. Dr. Baden found that the levels indicated that PJ had, in fact, been dead for around eight days, so police had missed his body. Police did not believe that, so Dr. Baden asked to speak with the officer who had searched beneath the bench, but no one had. 
he said. They had thought the space was too small. I could see why. For a big man, Yaroslavets had been a very small bundle. The Daily News reported that six detectives had searched Hall's office two days before PJ's body was found. At one point during the four-hour search, a detective had even sat down on the workbench, completely unaware of the dead body beneath it. Chief Detective John Keenan said at the time, Nobody thought of looking for a body in a box stuffed under the workbench. There were boxes piled neatly all over the place. PJ had died after one of the three plastic bags were placed over his head and secured with wire. It was unclear if he had regained consciousness after the blow to the head and suffocated as he struggled to free himself from the two-foot-by-three-foot box. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On September 29th, thousands of mourners crowded the streets in front of the Shomre Hadass Chapel near Fort Hamilton Parkway in Brooklyn. The Orthodox Jewish funeral home was full to capacity as people who knew PJ gathered to say their final goodbyes. One of the mourners told the Daily News, I would say 80% of the people here are from the Diamond Center. They knew him from there. He was well-liked. He was well-known. Everybody is upset. Tal was taken into custody as a material witness and brought to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office for questioning. The uncut diamonds discovered in his car were not believed to be from the batch PJ had been carrying. Deputy Chief Inspector Martin Duffy said that Tal had been questioned for hours and they had no plans to charge him with murder. Duffy told the Daily News, We are booking him as a material witness for his own protection. We are checking all phases of his story. He said he was the victim of a robbery and was forced into certain acts. Tal claimed that after the intruders forced him to conceal PJ's body, he went about his business as usual for five days. 
He said that he was afraid for the life and safety of his wife and children. Almost a week later, he was kidnapped by the same men at a traffic light on Long Island. After drugging him and holding him captive for two days, they wiped the car clean, removing any fingerprints. Despite the apparent meticulousness of the kidnappers, they didn't find the $30,000 worth of uncut diamonds in a leather pouch beneath the front seat. One officer was skeptical about Tal's account. He said, The real problem is the story is so stupid that it might be true. You can be sure we are going to question this guy and check out every move he ever made. Another diamond broker, Abraham Shafizadeh, had gone missing months earlier, and there were fears that an organized gang was targeting the Diamond District. The elusive criminal organization dubbed the Israeli Mafia, or the Arabs, by merchants on 47th Street, were believed to be responsible for a number of thefts and kidnappings of Orthodox Jewish diamond dealers. The men who Tal claimed killed PJ and kidnapped him five days earlier were supposedly part of this gang, made up of former Jewish Defense League members and Arab immigrants. One diamond broker told the news that he wasn't sure there was such a thing as the Israeli mafia. He said, Who can be 100% sure? Israel was started in 1948, and when we got our own country, we also got our own pimps, prostitutes, and crooks. We don't have a corner on the angel market of the world. At least six diamond merchants had been killed since 1974 many of whom were carrying large quantities of gems. Many robberies occurred after a broker was called by a prospective client who asked them to bring a large amount of diamonds to a location where they would be stolen. The FBI were involved because the thefts had been greater than $50,000 in most cases, and they believed it was likely that the stolen goods would be sold across state lines. The majority of their investigation focused on San Juan, Puerto Rico, where four diamond brokers had been killed after traveling there to sell the precious stones. The FBI revealed that more than $4 million worth of diamonds had been stolen from a number of dealers in the Diamond District within the last seven months. A command post was set up at the East 51st Street Police Station, and a task force was assembled to try and track down those responsible for the crime wave. Leading the task force was Deputy Chief Timothy Dowd who had led the team that had captured David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, just three months earlier. More diamond salesmen were turning up missing or murdered, and at first the police believed they were isolated events, but after PJ's murder, they wondered if there was a link between the cases. PJ was a broker who sold diamonds on behalf of dealers for a small commission. Dealers carry the financial risk, but it was the brokers who couriered the priceless stones through the streets with just a handshake to seal the deal. One witness claimed that PJ told him of a final appointment the evening he vanished. Another saw him heading toward Tal's office, and his friend said he would not have been carrying so many diamonds unless he expected to sell them. They wondered if Tal had called PJ to his office in order to steal from him. At a hearing, while Tal was held on a $75,000 bond as a material witness, the district attorney said that Tal had been called back to his office on the night of the murder to hide PJ's body. His defense lawyer, Stephen Hyman, admitted that Tal had information concerning a crime, but asked that he be granted bail on the condition that he surrender his passport 
and returned for questioning under a non-custodial setting. Tal was granted bail, and the police began looking into his history in Israel. People said that Tal had been a member of the Israeli Armed Forces before he moved to the States, and a criminal background check showed that Tal had been charged with car theft. They were also waiting on blood test results from the time Tal was found in his car. The results would prove or disprove whether or not he had, in fact, been drugged as he had claimed. The results came back, and the doctors could find no evidence of drugs in his system. They had ruled out barbiturate intoxication. In late October, merchants in the Diamond District reported that Mafia members tried to sell them some of the missing diamonds. PJ was believed to have been carrying at least 111 diamonds, the most expensive of which was a 12.09-carat brilliant diamond that was internally flawless and valued at over $100,000. Tal helped police draw composite sketches of the two men he claimed killed PJ. The Orthodox Jewish community blasted the FBI for not getting involved sooner especially as they had told them that P.J. had been carrying up to $2 million worth of diamonds. The task force had linked the murders of the three diamond brokers by the bullets they had been killed with. All of the bullets came from the same thirty-eight caliber pistol. However, P.J.'s murder did not fit the profile, and Tal's account began to change again. A grand jury was convened to decide whether or not charges would be placed against Tal. After six months of investigating, Tal and another dealer, Pinhas Balabin, who worked in the same building, were arrested and charged with murder. Balabin was also an Israeli immigrant. Tal and Balabin were longtime friends and both worked in the Diamond District. When the police looked into their criminal backgrounds in Israel, they discovered that Balabin had been convicted of drug charges and both men had been convicted of theft. A private investigator hired by PJ's friends and family uncovered links between the men and established that Balabin had no alibi for the time of the murder. The Daily News reported that sources close to the investigation said they believed there were links between the men and criminal organizations such as the Israeli Mafia. The same sources said that information had been given by the gang to the police investigating the murder. Tal and Balabin were held without bail while their attorneys and prosecutors prepared their case. It proved difficult for both sides as no one from the Diamond District wanted to speak. Deals were sealed with two Yiddish words, Mazel and Braka, which mean good luck and God bless you, and the industry ran on two principles, secrecy and credit. Balabin expressed his shock at being arrested for murder when he was interviewed at Rikers Island. He said, At first I thought it was a joke, and then I realized it wasn't. Nobody would play a joke like that. I had told the police everything I knew. I figured the cops wanted to learn something, and I was willing to help them. I had no reason to be nervous. Balabin lived with roommates in Manhattan, and Tal's wife said she was struggling without her husband at home. She maintained her belief that he was innocent and said, If the people on 47th Street would talk, the truth would be found. If they would tell what really happened, the police would find the real men who did this crime, not Shlomo. Jury selection for the murder trial got underway on September 7, 1978. 
almost one year after Pinhos Yaroslawicz was found dead. During voir dire, the jury were asked if they would be able to return a guilty verdict on a purely circumstantial case, as there were no witnesses to the crime. By September 12th, a jury of nine men and three women were chosen for the trial presided by Judge Aloysius Malia. The courtroom was packed with dozens of Hasidim, Orthodox Jewish men, all of whom had come as part of the Independent Committee of Friends of Pinhos Jaroslowitz. In his opening statement, District Attorney Peter Stevens for the prosecution said that they believed PJ was carrying almost a million dollars worth of diamonds and $2,500 in cash when he was last seen entering Tal's office on September 20th, the previous year. The prosecutor told the jury Tal's account of what had happened, that at 4 p.m. he had allowed two masked gunmen into his office, and they waited for an hour and a half for PJ to arrive. As he walked through the door, PJ was struck in the head with a two-by-four and then strangled. Tal was allowed to leave and claimed he went to Long Island to meet a mistress before being called back to his office later that night to hide the body. Stevens said that the following morning, Tal had made a bank deposit of $2,460 and then worked as normal, despite the body beneath his desk, for five days. Tal then said he was kidnapped by the same men who killed PJ and drugged and driven around for three more days before he was freed and found sleeping in his wife's car. Tal's defense attorney, Stephen Hyman, didn't deny that it was his client's account. He said, Tal did tell that story. It is a strange one. No bones about it. But truth may be stranger than fiction. Hyman wanted to sever the trials of Tal and Balabin as the prosecution had two witnesses who claimed to have heard Balabin confess to the crime. Judge Malia denied the notion and Balabin's roommate, Hyam Brat, took the stand. Brat said Balabin, known as Pini, had told him that he had killed PJ. Brat told the jury, he told me he's going to have a lot of money, and if the police should ever come and question me, I should stick to my story that I saw him coming home with a girl. He said he hit him over the head and strangled him. Brat's girlfriend, Ellen Riley, also testified about an alleged confession. She recounted Balabin telling her he got a great sensation out of killing, that it didn't bother him whatsoever. He said that there were some problems, that trying to get rid of the body was a problem. The defense said that neither witness had come forward for months, and they believed they were testifying after being threatened with deportation, an allegation the witnesses denied. During a break in testimony, the defense for Tal claimed he was cornered by a group of Hasidim in the elevator as he made his way from the 13th floor courtroom. They told him that every minute Tal breathed was a disgrace and that they would convict him if he was not convicted at the trial. They also surrounded Balabin's attorney, Abraham Brodsky, and shouted, He's guilty! He's guilty! How dare you defend him! Speaking about the incident, Hyman said, I think it was an unfortunate display of prejudice against my client, and I'm thankful we have the jury system that does not conduct trials in the street, like certain spectators would like. Judge Malia berated the Hasidim, telling them, The spectacle in the corridor is not justice. This case will be decided on facts and under law, not by passion or prejudice by anyone. It will not be determined by mob rule, dictatorship, anybody or any group. Our system has stood us well for over 200 years. It is a government under law, not under men. Those of you who do not wish to follow our law will not be allowed in this courtroom. PJ's cousin Manny said that the remarks by some members did not represent the entire community. 
He told Newsday reporters, Not everything that is said by an individual need be applied to any whole group of people. Some people can only see things one way. PJ's death was a loss to the whole community. Some of these people didn't even know him. They're just a little too emotional. Tensions were high among many of the Hasidim in court, a usually reserved group, who believed their willingness to speak out would let the world know that they could not get away with killing them. One said, Enough of us were killed in Europe, and nobody said anything. No more. We won't let it go by any more. Tal and Balabin were also Jewish, but did not follow the same strict rules as the Hasidic members of the community. As testimony continued, more medical evidence was admitted. Tal had claimed to have been drugged and kidnapped. While a blood test found no trace of drugs in his system, his urine did test positive for Thorazine, a sedative. The defense contended that this backed up Tal's story, but the prosecution did not believe it. Balabin had also been linked to the murder by a roll of plastic bags found in his house. The large gray plastic bags were the same kind that were found wrapped around PJ's body. After the state rested their case, the defense began presenting their case. Hyman Fertal said that the prosecution had, in effect, proved that his client was innocent. Both Tal and Balabin's lawyers asked for a dismissal of the charges, as they felt as though their client's guilt had not been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Another witness testified that Balabin had confessed to him before the closing arguments began. Stevens asked the jury to consider, why would the alleged masked men murder PJ in a stranger's office in front of a witness? Why, after killing PJ, did they allow the only witness to live? Why didn't they just take the money and run? The story gets more absurd as we go along. Tal and Balabin's attorneys argued that the witnesses were not credible. Just because Tal was a coward for not telling police PJ was killed did not mean that he was a murderer. Tal's lawyer also argued that the prosecution's claim that Tal had deposited almost the exact sum of cash PJ had when he vanished did not prove his guilt either. The defense rested their case immediately, believing the testimony of 56 witnesses and the evidential value of 36 exhibits were too weak to convict their clients. They were wrong. Tal and Balabin were found guilty of murder by the jury after two days of deliberations. While PJ's loved ones were relieved by the verdict, even the prosecution felt it was an empty victory. Tal's wife had been left to raise three children alone with no support. On November 10, 1978, Shlomo Tal and Pinhas Balabin were sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for what Judge Malia called a cold, brutal, vicious murder of a fine, hard-working family man who hadn't even reached the prime of his life. Balabin had told the judge before the sentence was imposed, If you are ever about to sentence innocent people, you are about to do it now. Tal and Balabin served their sentences in various prisons throughout the state of New York. Both men attempted to sue the correctional department at different times for breaching their rights by taking items from them during searches of their cells. The only semblance of a confession came at their parole hearings in 2003, when Tal said that he and Balabin had planned to stage a robbery to commit insurance fraud, but PJ had disagreed and gotten into an argument with Balabin turned violent. Tal claimed that Balabin had choked PJ in a headlock, and at his own parole hearing, Balabin admitted, During the physical fight, I guess I strangled him. 
The diamonds have never been recovered, and neither man would say how they disposed of them. Both men were denied parole continuously, and Shlomo Tal died in prison in 2013. Pinhas Balabin was paroled into the custody of U.S. immigration in 2015 as he was not a U.S. citizen. The Diamond District still holds its own on 47th Street. It is still a tight-knit community that deals with the majority of jewelry-grade diamonds sold in the country, but PJ's murder damaged the trust that had been built up between brokers, dealers, and diamond cutters, and deepened the secrecy intertwined in the custom. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.